glad to have you with us this morning. Uh, parents of elementary school age kids, if you want to dismiss them at this time to the back, uh, our teachers would love to uh, take your kids away to their lesson time and love on them and show them Jesus uh, this morning. Uh, go ahead and turn over in your Bibles to John chapter 10. Uh, if this is your first Sunday with us and you have not gotten a scripture journal yet from us, uh, just raise your hand. We'd love to give one to you. That's our free gift to you. It's just the Gospel of John, and then it has a place to take notes. We would just ask that as you come back in future weeks that you would bring that back with you. Um, but the reason we give those out as free gifts uh, every week is because we just love the Word of God here. We believe strongly that it is how God is speaking to us today and that we have something to hear from Him. And what we've been doing as a church since really the second week of January is working through the entire Gospel of John. We work through books of the Bible here intentionally at Aletheia Church because we believe that we get the full counsel of God when we do that, that we won't glance over things that make us feel uncomfortable, that we would have a tendency to ignore certain parts that we might not uh, want to hear from or parts that might brush up against our culture or what the world is telling us today. And so we study the Bible verse by verse, line by line, and we'll be done with the Gospel of John, hopefully sometime in 2024. Uh, but either way, this morning we're going to finish up John chapter 10. So as you turn over there in your Bibles, I want to pose a question for you just to kind of get the ball rolling, to get us thinking through some things this morning so that we kind of maybe understand the context of what is going on in this portion of John's gospel. One of the things I've said to us as we've studied this book together is that John is really strategic in how he presents and lays out his gospel for us. When you read the gospel of Matthew or the gospel of Mark or the gospel of Luke, uh, those gospels are known as synoptic gospels. And the goal of those gospels is, is a little bit different than John's gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, while having a particular bend and audience in their writing, tend to just want to record exactly what happened in Jesus' life. It, it tends to be kind of very, Jesus went here, then Jesus went here, then Jesus went here and did this. And they kind of give us a snapshot of what Jesus' ministry was like in a relatively chronological and historical order. However, John's gospel is completely different. John has no problem with just skipping large portions of time. He might even jump around and jump back to dates because he, his gospel is written much more thematically that he is attempting to, and as we saw in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, which is really the thesis statement and the entire purpose of John's gospel, is that he wants us as the reader to know that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, and in him we would believe in him, and from that we would have life abundantly. That is the entire reason why John wrote his gospel. And so even this morning, we're going to see, if you were here last week, John shared with us Jesus' words on being the good shepherd and who he is and what that means. And then there's going to be this big lapse of time, and we're going to come to this portion in this story of what we see in John's gospel this morning. And so here's my question for you. How many of you have ever had someone ask you a question, maybe seeking some sort of important answer, maybe you're in a debate, maybe you're a boss and it's an employee trying to figure out something, only to dismiss your answer or ignore what you said? Show of hands, okay, like six of you. The rest of you, awesome. Okay, more hands are going up now. All right. All right, pretty frustrating, right? 
hey, like, why is this the way that it is? And then you answer them truthfully and they respond in frustration or anger. Or they say, wait, tell me the answer again. Or they ask you to reword it in some other way. I imagine that this is what my parents often felt like growing up with me, right? Here's a typical story in my household with teenage Kevin, okay? Hey, mom, can I go to this party and stay out past curfew this week? Mom, no, right? My immediate response, right? Any teenager, right? You're, you're, you're tracking with me, right? Well, why not? Fair, fair question, okay? Mom, because you'll likely only get yourself into trouble and it's unsafe because I don't know the family of the house you would be at. Now, here's the clincher. But mom, why? I need a real reason. Some are laughing because they're like, Kevin's really dumb as a teenager. Yes. Right? Some of you are laughing because you've done that exact same thing with your parents at some point in time. Mom and dad, by the way, if you're watching the live stream, I'm sorry. Okay. So what I, what I am describing in that story is actually a psychological phenomenon known as confirmation bias. Here's the definition. Confirmation bias is when people have a tendency to process information by looking for and or interpreting information that is consistent with their existing beliefs. This biased approach to decision-making is largely unintentional, and it results in a person ignoring information that is inconsistent with their beliefs. These beliefs can include a person's expectations in a given situation and their predictions about a particular outcome. People are especially likely to process information to support their own beliefs when an issue is highly important or self-relevant. So in my case, right, my confirmation bias was that I likely knew my parents were going to say no, so I was prepared to reject their reasoning as insufficient in our discussion on whether I could go to the party or not. Confirmation bias. The reason I share that, and because all of us do this, all human beings do this. This is actually like a psychological phenomenon that you can study if you are in higher education levels for psychology. There's a reason why human beings do this. On the average day, some people estimate that human beings make somewhere around 15,000 decisions. And so confirmation bias is one of the things that our brains actually do sometimes to help us be uh, protected from decision fatigue, right? Some of you guys like, if you're in a relationship and your partner asks you where they want to eat and you're just like, I don't know, I don't care, just decide something, I don't want to make one more decision today. I can't handle it, right? In my house, it's I give my wife some options and then she tells me no and finally decides what she wants. But, but however we get to that conclusion, right, we often struggle from decision fatigue. However, confirmation bias is problematic because if our confirmation bias spits in the face of truth and information, we have a real problem. You guys might be sitting there wondering, what the heck is Kevin talking about, <laughs> right? The reason why I'm sharing this is this is exactly what Jesus is dealing with in John chapter 10. It's actually what he dealt with pretty much throughout his entire ministry. He spent years at this point in John chapter 10 explaining and revealing and unveiling who he was to the nation of Israel. And yet, look at what the Jewish crowd says to him in verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, 
How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. The crowd has completely, at this point, ignored all of his teaching, all of the revelation, all the things that he has done, all the things that he has shared with them. And they're coming at him and they just said, hey, enough hiding, enough speaking in parables, enough doing these, this uh, like psychological jujitsu that you've been doing on us, enough of all of that. Just tell us plainly, are you the Christ or not? And this morning what we're going to see is two really beautiful things. Jesus lovingly responding to that. But in the midst of that response, the proclamation of hope that he gives to those who believe in him. Because that's who he's predominantly speaking to in this passage. So here's some key themes from our passage this morning that I want us to note as we kind of like work our way through verses 22 through 42 this morning. We're going to see the confirmation bias of the Jews. We're going to see the good news for God's people. That's a really, really important thing to notice there. The good news is for those that are of God or in him, right? We're going to see Jesus make that abundantly clear this morning, right? And then we're going to see Jesus unveil his identity and authority to them one more time, even though he's already been doing it throughout his entire ministry. So starting in verse 22, look at what John shares with us about Jesus's life. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Now, for those of you guys that are familiar with John's gospel, you've been with us as we've been studying this together, you'll notice that John loves to share the the time period of the story centered around various feasts or festivals or things that were going on in the life of Jewish history. Okay, so we saw a couple weeks ago the Feast of the Tabernacles. We've seen Jesus' response at the time of Passover. That we've seen these various uh, religious holidays in the Jewish calendar. And that tends to be what John centers his storytelling around in his gospel. And so when we get to this story, right, Jesus is in Jerusalem at this feast called the Feast of Dedication. And some of you are like, cool, what's that? And some of you guys are like, hey, I've read my Old Testament There was no Feast of Dedication. What are you talking about? So I'm going to tell you. It's not found in the Old Testament because the Feast of Dedication first happened during what is known as the intertestamental period in Jewish history. So when you get to the end of the book of Malachi, up until the Gospels of Jesus, there's this time period in Jewish history called the intertestamental period. And theologians and scholars will state that God was fairly silent during that period. He wasn't speaking through prophets, but that doesn't mean that there weren't things going on in the nation of Israel and amongst God's people during this time period. And one of the things that occurred in 167 BC was a Syrian leader named Antiochus Epiphanes conquered Jerusalem. And once he had come into Jerusalem, He polluted the temple of God by setting up a pagan altar inside of the temple and actually went so far as to sacrifice a pig on the altar in the temple. And so you want to talk about just the most profane, disgusting thing you could do to really, for lack of a better term, stick it to your enemies and just make fun of their religion, their culture, their heritage, and what they believed this Syrian leader, Antiochus, did this. He came into 
Jerusalem, conquered the temple, and then started profaning the holiness of God's temple inside of Jerusalem. And there was kind of this insurrection that started inside of Israel to push back on Syrian authority and rule until a guy by the name of Judas Maccabeus rose up an army and overthrew Syrian occupation and threw them out of Israel, right? He's actually known as Judas uh, the Hammer in Jewish history. And so Judas Maccabeus overthrows and recaptures Jerusalem and to commemorate God's faithfulness to them as they had thrown these Syrians out of Israel, a feast began to be celebrated in December, the month of December, um, over the course of about eight days. And today we call that holiday Hanukkah. Right? For those of you guys that are unfamiliar with Hanukkah, Adam Sandler wrote a famous song years ago about it. You can go download it later and listen to it. Um, by the way, you won't learn a ton about Hanukkah if you listen to that song, but it is kind of funny. Okay. Our, our, so our backdrop to this story is it's wintertime, it's December, and some time has passed from Jesus' good shepherd discourse, and he is now in the temple during the Feast of Dedication teaching, and we get to verse 24, and that's where the Jews come up to him inside the temple and are like, all right, enough is enough. We're tired of listening to your teaching. Just explain to us plainly, are you the Messiah or not? No tricks, no sleight of hand. We just want to know, who are you? And the Jews are a mixture of the Pharisees and the scribes and the priests and the people inside of Jerusalem. And so here they are saying, tell us plainly. And as I was reading that verse this past week, something kind of jogged my memory of my time in seminary during my church history class is something similar happened to the father of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther. So when Martin Luther, if you're familiar with him, he, he was a Catholic monk, priest, whatever term you want to use. And one of the things that had happened during his lifetime in his Catholic monastery was that he began to believe that the Catholic church had become corrupt, that they were selling indulgences, that they weren't properly teaching the gospel, that they had polluted God's word. And so he wrote 95 theses. He nailed them to the door, right? And what ended up happening was the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church excommunicated him for standing up to this corruption that he had seen inside of the church. And after his excommunication in 1521, he was brought before the Holy Roman Emperor to defend his beliefs. And as he was brought before them during the questioning, Luther was given the opportunity to recant his positions to which Luther responded in this way. He said, which, which writings do you want me to recant of? I have written many things. Surely you're not indicating that everything that I have ever written is heretical. And the interrogator stands up and looks at him and says, we want you to respond without horns. And what that statement meant is we want you to speak simply and directly and just answer the question. We don't want you to play these games. And obviously, as we know, Luther refused to recant and was taken in by some princes in the empire and kept safe for a time. But the line of questioning that Martin Luther underwent at the Diet of Worms, that's the, the name of this famous kind of pivotal moment in the Protestant Reformation, is very similar to what Jesus is going through here in the temple at Solomon's Colonnade 
in the first century. That Luther is saying, hey, you literally have my writings. Ask which things you want me to talk about. And they just said, hey, we want you just to recant everything you've ever written. He's like, not going to do that, right? You need to point out, right, so that we can have a in-depth discussion on the things I've written. And they're saying, hey, speak plainly. In the same way, the Jewish crowd has come to Jesus and said, hey, we just we want to know plainly. And Jesus's response to them is going to reveal to them, right, that he is the Messiah, but he's not going to say it plainly the way they want to. Because if he does so, it carries so many connotations with it that it's going to start an uprising and an uproar inside of Israel. And the purpose of him coming to earth in the first place and his entire ministry does not involve a political insurrection, but involves saving the entire world from their sins. And so while the crowd there is confused and angry that Jesus isn't speaking clearly, Jesus is actually speaking abundantly clearly because he knows what the mission from his father is. As a matter of fact, Jesus did reveal himself as the Messiah to people outside of even his own discipleship group. If you remember John chapter 4 when he was at the, Samar- at the well with the Samaritan woman, she said that, hey, we know who the Messiah is. We, we know that he's coming. And Jesus says, he whom you are speaking with, I am he. Right? Like, I, I am the Messiah. So he would share that with the Samaritan woman, but he would not do it in the crowd. And here, even in this moment, he's not going to give them what they want. And as they press for answers, Jesus' response to them is one of hope and authority. And look starting in verse 25 with me, as we see the good news that Jesus shares for those who are his sheep. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now, you might sit there and you think, like, hey, Jesus doesn't really answer their question. He doesn't really answer plainly at all. And in some ways you would be right, and in some ways you would be 100% wrong, right? Because the reality is, is Jesus is answering plainly, but he's answering plainly to those who have placed their faith and their hope in him. See, Jesus even says to them, and there's a lot to unpack here, but he says to them, "I, I have spoken clearly. I've been teaching for years at this point. You just simply do not grasp what I'm teaching because you are not among my sheep. This this is why John shares this story here because it goes in conjunction with what John had taught us about Jesus in the first half of John chapter 10. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon. But Jesus shares in that discourse that he is the good shepherd, that he's come to provide pasture and security and safety for his flock, that in saving them, right, he was going to be all of these things for them. And unlike the religious leaders of Israel's day, he was going to be the good shepherd that took care of them. 
And so when we get to this passage then in the second half of John chapter 10, basically what Jesus is saying is, I've already spoken plainly to you who I am. You just can't grasp who I am. And the reason why they're unable to grasp that is because of that confirmation bias that I talked about earlier. See, what the Jewish crowd was looking for was a political king. They were looking for someone that was going to bring them everything that they wanted, predominantly getting rid of Roman occupation inside of Israel. They wanted to see the kingdom of God restored. They wanted to see all these different things happen. And meanwhile, Jesus had been preaching that he was the Messiah, but that as the Messiah, he was going to be the suffering servant, that he was going to be peaceful, that his works testified to who he was, not his words, that his words were from God the Father himself and that they were to reveal the Father to them so that they might know who God truly was. And as Jesus has shared those things, those things went up against, are brushed up against, their preconceived notions of who the Israeli Messiah was supposed to be. And they could not get past it, and so they refused to fully stop and consider what Jesus was teaching. And Jesus responds, I spoke clearly, and my sheep understood, and they follow me. And then he shares what that good news is for his sheep, what that good news is for his disciples. For those of you who are in this room this morning, the words of Jesus here are a great encouragement to you no matter what life is throwing at you right now. And look at the first thing he says. He says that the sheep hear his voice and he calls them. Just pause and think about that for a minute. What does that communicate to you if you are a follower of Jesus Christ here this morning? It says that God wants you. He doesn't need you doesn't have to have you. No, it says that God wants you and chose you and called you. I don't know about you guys, but that's good news, right? That God so loved, right, as John 3, 16 says, that God so loved you that he called you and chose you as his own. And not only does he call you and choose you as his own because he wants you, but it says that he knows his sheep. Guys, that is fantastic news. Pause and think about that for a minute. God knows you better than you know you. The God and the creator of the universe knows you. And yet still calls you. This means that both in your highs and your lows, God's disposition towards you does not change. And it's not because of your merit or how hard you've worked or something that you've done. No, it's simply because God chose you and loves you. God, guys, if you grasp this, if you understand what Jesus is sharing with his disciples and with the crowd here, 
it will radically transform how you live your life as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Because so often, right, what we're taught and how we operate in our day-to-day lives is a, a quid pro quo type life. Right? Even some of our best friendships in this world are transactional. Right? If we're spending time with that person, if we're doing things with that person, if we're maybe giving gifts or, you know, for those of us that are married, right, participating in the love languages that we're supposed to, right? whatever, whatever that might look like, so much of life is transactional. Your job, the university and, and degree field that you're working towards. Your relationships. If you're performing well, people love having you around. You might, as a matter of fact, in the, in the business world, you can be a difficult person and if you're performing well, people will tolerate you. I love sports. Like you see that all the time in sports. They'll be like a really, really difficult person on a sports team. And as long as they're like scoring touchdowns or scoring baskets, it's like, oh, well, you know, he's problem, but he's our problem. And the moment they stop performing, what happens? Cut ties with them. Jesus looks out upon his sheep and sees them, sees us our imperfections and our flaws. He says, I love you. I choose you. I want you. I know you. And you're mine. And nothing you do can change that. Even at your lowest, Christ died for you. It's one of the reasons why Jesus shares what he shares next because here's my thought process on like the relationship theologically between faith and works, right? And Christians have been debating this topic for thousands of years. But Jesus seems to have no problem with that tension here. Look at at what he says next. He says, hey, I, I want you. I know you. I call you. And then he says that his sheep actually follow him. It means they believe and obey him. You know, one of the things that I think is true of anyone in this room who has been a, a follower or a disciple of Jesus for any extended period of time, you at some point have asked yourself the question, am I really a follower of Jesus or not? You've gotten to such a low point or you've sinned in such a way or you've done something or you've doubted and you, you've asked at some point, am I really a follower of Jesus? And what Jesus makes abundantly clear in this passage is that first and foremost, he wants and calls you. And to those whom he calls and are truly his sheep, you will display over the course of your life a growing and increasing love for him and obedience towards him. Marks of true faith always lead to a greater love for God, his word, and his commands. And in that love and faith, we move from a pattern in our lives that is one of rejection of God and his word and his commands and a love of self to a pattern of rejection of self 
and obedience and love towards God. Now, inevitably, when I say something like that, people start getting weird. Like, well, what's the level of that? And I don't know. And how much is that? And how much more obedience should I be increasing? And I'm like, I'm not worried about that. That's for the Holy Spirit to work alongside you in as he sanctifies you and moves you to be more like Jesus. But what Jesus is saying here in these verses is, I love and want my sheep. I know them, even their flaws. And my sheep, as they follow me, will obey increasingly over the course of their lives. Jesus says, I call you, I know you, I sanctify you, and then there's even more good news at the end, right? Because inevitably what happens, right, we read that and we'll say, well, I mean, like, it, you know, for me personally, if I look back over the course of coming up on almost 20 years of being a follower of Jesus, I can see the change in the, over the course of my life. But there are some days where I look at my life that day and I'm really disappointed with myself. And I ask myself that question, how could God really love me? How could God really choose to say that I am his, even though if he knows me fully, right? And look at what Jesus says here. I give them, that's the sheep, eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Notice the language there. None of it is based on your performance or the sheep's performance. I give them eternal life. They won't perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Right? See, this is a, a beautiful promise of God to his disciples here. The promise of eternal life. And yes, Jesus is promising that those who are his disciples will live forever, but he's talking about something much greater than just what happens to you and I after we breathe our last breath. He's also talking about abundant life in the here and now. See, so many of us have this internal kind of problem that we play with ourselves of asking just like the simple question of why am I here? Why is anything that I'm doing matter? It's why those that reject the notion of God often turn to nihilism. If you guys don't know what that is, look it up. It's really, really sad. But it's a logical conclusion if you reject the existence of God. And as you think through that, right, some of the pain and the heartache and the difficulty that all of us will walk through in this life, right, part of the abundant and eternal life that God gives us in Christ is the why for the glory of God. See, when you exist for yourself, the idea of pain and suffering seems almost impossible to grasp. But when you realize your life ultimately is not about you, but who created you, there starts to become a lot more answers to those deep longings of our heart. And not only does Jesus give eternal life, but he promises that nothing can be done to take that away. Nothing. Doctrinally, what Jesus is talking about here in these verses is either known as eternal security or the perseverance of the saints. And here's, here's why that matters. If, you're, if you consider or call yourself a disciple of Jesus in the room this morning, 
If you could lose your salvation, I, I promise you this, you would. If you could lose it, 100% guarantee you, you would lose it. If it was based on your performance, if you could undo the work of Jesus Christ in his life, death, burial, and resurrection, you would. But here Jesus says to him, it isn't up to you. It's up to the son and the father's hold on you to keep you secure. Let me give you an example of why this makes sense. Right? I have a young son. He's eight years old. He's Josiah. He's super cute. Don't know where he got it from. Some, some of you guys who've been around the church for a while, like, you know he's like shy, but he's really cute, and like you've done everything you can to try to get his attention, and he knows. He's like, he'll bat his eye at you, but he won't talk to you because he knows he's got you wrapped around his finger. Okay, so one of the things that's true about my youngest son is that he's very shy and reserved, and anytime he's in a crowd, he's super nervous. And so like even here at church, where he knows a lot of you, you'll notice he'll like hide behind me, and kind of like look around at you, even if you're trying to talk to him, or he'll come up and he'll hold my hand, right? And that helps him cope with his nervousness and his insecurity, right? And holding dad's hand, he feels secure and that he's held on tight. However, right, there's a higher level of security that could come for Josiah, right? When, in, in church settings where I'm comfortable and, and I know the people that are around him, I'm not going to grab onto his hand because I know he's relatively safe and he's okay, and he can hold my hand if he wants, but I'm not going to hold back. But when I'm at an airport, or a couple months ago, we were at an Orioles game in Baltimore, and there was a large crowd there. When we're in that crowd, I'm not just letting Josiah hold my hand. Guess what I'm doing? I'm holding onto his hand. Now, why am I doing that? Because I know that Josiah can't hold my hand strongly enough that if the crowd really started pressing up against us or pushing us away or whatever else, that he wouldn't be able to have the requisite strength needed to hold on to dad and not get separated. But if I grab onto his hand and I have tight on it, guess what happens? I'm holding on. If someone grabs him, a fight's breaking out. I don't know what's happening, right? But I promise you that grip is a grip of death. And when I mean grip of death, I mean if you try to take my kid, you will die. Right, what Jesus is sharing with us here is that the same way that I would grip and hold on to Josiah's hand at the cost of even my own life to keep him safe is the grasp that Jesus and the Father have a hold of their sheep. And you cannot break that grasp. The same grip that the Father keeps on their child to keep them safe is the grip that God keeps on you as his child. It's why the Apostle Paul put it this way in Colossians chapter 3, where he's talking about putting on the new self and what sanctification looks like, but then he reminds them of this promise. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's not about you anymore. You died the translation of that is that for those of us in the room this morning who are disciples of Jesus, when you think about your poor performance or how you don't measure up to the standard of the word of God, when God looks at you, he no longer sees your record. He sees the record of Jesus Christ in whom he is well pleased because you have died and are hidden with Christ 
in God. And all of this is because Jesus is the good shepherd who knows you, who calls you, who is sanctifying you and secures you. Jesus takes this moment as the crowd is saying, hey, speak to us plainly. And he says, sure, let me speak plainly to you about the magnitude of my love for the sheep. This is what I've come to do. And this is a reality for each and every one of us in this room this morning who would call ourselves a disciple and follower of Jesus Christ. That there is nothing that you can do that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Jesus goes on and he makes sure that the crowd and those that believe understand the magnitude of what he's done, right? And then he's going to unveil his identity and authority to them, right? Look at what he says starting in verse 30. I and the Father are one. This is the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And what's interesting here is this is kind of like a play on words for Jesus, right? Because it is certainly a deity claim, right? One of my favorite things is talking to people who some 2,000 years are reading the Bible and think that they have a better understanding of what Jesus meant to say than he himself or his disciples who sat directly underneath of his teaching. It's always my favorite. It's just like, like guys, hear me on this. If you're not a follower of Jesus here this morning and you reject a lot of what Jesus would, would say, let me just hear this as a warning. It is the height of hypocrisy and arrogance to think that you're smarter than the person that wrote what they wrote. And the people that sit directly underneath their teaching relate to us. I mean, it's just unbelievable to me the mental gymnastics we play to try to reject what Jesus said. But people all often say, like, I don't think Jesus thought he was God's son. I don't think Jesus thought that he was really God. It's like, well, have you read the Gospel of John? Because he says it, like, a lot. Right? And even here, right? I and the Father are one. And he's referring here to the mission to save his sheep, to call them, to know them, and to keep them, and to sanctify them. But he's also using that as a play on, hey, the Father and I are so in tune that we are one of the same. We have the same essence. And Jesus has said this, by the way, multiple times throughout the Gospel of John. Like, I don't do anything my Father doesn't want me to do. Everything I'm here to do is to reveal to you what my Father said. We are the same, right? So he's been building to this this moment, knowing that those in the crowd that had heard this know what he's getting at. And not surprisingly, the crowds prepared to stone him because that was what you did to those who were committing blasphemy. That if a man was claiming to be God, the Levitical law says to stone them. However, the only problem with that is if you claim to be God and are God, what do you do? Okay, so they claim to stone him, and this is Jesus' response to them. Look at verse 32. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So pause there, by the way. Just as a reminder, if you're in here again this morning and you're already a little upset with me because I called you arrogant because you don't think that Jesus thought he was God, let's just be clear that the crowd thought he was claiming that. 
the, the very people that refused to follow him still thought that he was claiming to be God. Okay? And Jesus' response to them is, hey, which of, which of my good works from my father are you stoning me for? Was it the, was it the blind man that I healed? Maybe it was the paralyzed guy. Was that bad? Was, was, that, was that the problem one? Or was it when I, when I went to the wedding and provided a bunch of wine at the, at the wedding reception? Was that, was, that, was that the thing you're going to stone me for? And they're like, no, 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 stop, Jesus. It's not for a good work, but you being a man, make yourself God. See, Jesus is setting them up on how to display his identity and authority to them again. And look at what he says, starting in verse 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. And so there's two arguments Jesus is going to make here to unveil his authority and his identity. Right? The first one is a biblical argument, and it's kind of, it's kind of crafty from Jesus, actually. Right? Um, and it can be a little confusing, right? because the argument is like, hey, doesn't the Bible say you are God's? Right? He's quoting Psalm 82, verse 6. And that psalm is about how the nation of Israel was in such a mess that God had instituted and called judges to rule over the nation of Israel. And those judges had ruled and executed with righteousness and with justice. And the psalmist is is basically saying, hey, these guys are ruling as gods. They're ruling as if God himself were standing over Israel and telling us what to do. And Jesus is response to them is, hey, you know, the Old Testament is the word of God, and it can't be broken. And if God himself, in his word, called these judges gods, then how much more so would I, the Son of God, who was consecrated by the Father, who knows the Father and then was sent by the Father, how much more so am I qualified than those judges that that term could be used for me? For you to argue that I would use that terminology for myself is actually for you to argue against Scripture, because Scripture uses that terminology. Now, Jesus is obviously, right, simply just trying to unfoil the Pharisees' very, very strict and literal way of interpreting the Scripture and approaching things. But Jesus is ultimately saying, like, hey, if those guys got to be called that term, how much more so should I be able to be called this term from a biblical perspective? Then he moves on and says, not just the scripture itself, but how about this? Consider my works. Consider what I've actually been doing. My works are a testimony of him who sent me and where I came from. If you look closely at my works, you will see this. You will know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. said, if anyone truly loves God and understands how God operates, you cannot possibly look at my ministry and come to any other conclusion other than I was sent from the Father and that what I say is true. 
And their response is to not to pause and consider and think through what Jesus is saying and challenge their assumptions about who the Messiah was supposed to be and rethink and, and get down on their hands and knees and worship Jesus. Instead, they try to arrest him because their bias will not allow them to reconsider their position. And I would submit to you that that's where many people sit today in regards to Jesus. They've already come to the conclusion of who he is before they ever even hear a word uttered from his word. So Jesus, he retreats. He heads back across the Jordan River. We see that in verses 40 through 42. It says that many came to him while he was out there and many believed in him. And so here's how I want to leave us this morning. What will you do with Jesus? And this goes for believers and non-believers in the room. <clears throat> consider the arguments and consider your confirmation bias. Right? Think about the biblical evidence for Jesus being the Messiah and the Son of God who came to die and take away the sins of the world. The Bible had talked for thousands of years of the coming Messiah who would die for the sins of the world. If you don't believe me, when you go home today, read Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant. You, you are literally going to think that Isaiah wrote that after Jesus' life, after you read that, of how closely Jesus follows that picture. And then know that the prophet Isaiah prophesied that hundreds of years before Jesus ever walked this earth. That there are moments throughout the books of Ezekiel and Malachi that testify to what the Messiah would look like. And it was a far more robust picture than what the nation of Israel thought in the first century. And falls much more in line with what Jesus says. And then I would encourage you to consider his works whether you don't believe and think that Jesus might have been some good moral teacher or some carpenter that lived in first century Israel and that people had created Christianity to try to control people, which I assure you, if you look back on the history of Christianity, they did a terrible job. Or maybe you're a Christian struggling to believe in the reality that God knows you, that he loves you, that he calls you, and that he keeps you. And instead of looking to your own life or your own knowledge, I would instead encourage you to look to his works. The healed blind man who had been blind from birth, who now saw. The paralyzed man who had been an invalid for 38 years, and Jesus simply told him to get up and walk, and he did. The man who turned water into wine to save the shame of his family at a wedding reception because they didn't have enough for everyone to drink. Or the ultimate work. Where this man who had done no wrong, who only loved, and only revealed the Father, who did miracles to verify that he had come from God, laid down his life in the most brutal way imaginable, a Roman crucifixion, and then rose three days later. And that work 
forgives us of our sins and satisfies the wrath of God. And he is now calling you, his sheep, to come to him. Because he knows you, because he loves you. And he secures you by the power of his hand. Believe in him today. Because it's true. Everyone.